Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is Dr. Samir Saran, the President of the Observer Research Foundation, a leading Indian think tank. India is battling a devastating second wave of COVID. Hospitals are filled to capacity, ambulance sirens wail through the night, medical oxygen is in scarce supply. Crematoriums are unable to keep up with the demand and makeshift funeral pyres have been set up in car parks and by the side of the road. India is literally gasping for air as coronavirus engulfs the nation. Every Indian, whether they live in India or they're part of the diaspora, has been affected by this crisis. And that includes, of course, the large Indian diaspora in Australia. So for this episode of the Director's Chair, I wanted to talk to someone who is bearing witness to this tragedy, but also someone bearing witness to the great resilience of the Indian people. And I can think of no better person than my good friend, Samir Saran. Thank you, Samir, for joining me from Delhi for the Director's Chair. Thank you for having me, Michael. I think this is an important conversation at this time. Let me start by asking you, Samir, about your personal experiences. I know you're recovering from the virus yourself. You're living in your home in Delhi with your family. I know you lost a colleague from ORF a couple of weeks ago to COVID. Uh, Tell me about what you are seeing. Tell me about your experiences in the last few months. Michael, it's been tough. It's been a tough uh, few weeks. And uh, I can confirm that it's going to be another few weeks before we see some uh, sunlight. There are dark days uh, for much of India. We are going to see sporadic improvement. We are going to see a decline in certain conditions. We're going to see certain cities shine. We're going to see them slide back. I think it's going to be a good month of a hard battle, a disciplined battle, if we have to respond to this virus. Both of them don't come easily to us. We have to be more disciplined than we've been. Uh, as a community, as a country, as a governance system. We also have to be really focused and tough on responding to this pandemic. And I think the pandemic, the description captures what we are experiencing right now. We, have, we, are, a, we are a country, we are a community, we are a society, we are a city, we are a family that's been overwhelmed mm. by the pandemic. You know, you asked me about my personal situation. That's not really relevant to what we are experiencing as a nation. But, you know, just to give you a flavor. Mm. In the last week in November, four out of the 10 folks who live in this multi-story, multi-flat uh, building in, in where I stay uh, were infected. Mm. Uh, and we had the same number this time as well. And this is a story in the, uh, off the street. So as you walk down my street, you will possibly hear a very similar tale. There is no respite to individuals. Now, some of us are lucky. We could manage it at home. We could manage it uh, through uh, digital and telemedicine and and speaking to doctors on on the video phone Mm. uh, and get through it. But uh, we all know that a certain percentage of cases, the percentage varies where you are, Mm. uh, but a certain percentage of cases uh, require medical care. Now for a country of 1.4 billion people, that any percentage is going to overwhelm a medical system that was struggling in the business as usual scenario. Mm. Uh, So in that sense, I always tell people that India offers this very interesting, very specific landscape for uh, the pandemic. It offers the largest surface area, 1.4 billion people. The spread could be really large. 
also offers a population that's largely living at under $2,000 per capita income. So you have a weak response capabilities in terms of how much you can throw at the virus. And you have a very large surface area the virus could uh, run through. Mm. And in that sense, uh, that is exactly what is playing out. Limited state capacity and an overwhelming spread. This is the story of the Indian pandemic. We are all going through a really, really tough period. But what uh, gladdens my heart is to see how the community has come together. Mm. Of course, we are seeing uh, uh, politicking, good old-fashioned political conversations, arguments, debates, and and battles on social media and other places. But we are also seeing a very strong community and individuals uh, rally their networks, their resources, and put together an informal quasi-framework that is responding to the virus. I tweeted a few weeks ago that the community is the cavalry. That's it. Mm -hmm. We will all have to rally together to respond to something that has clearly overwhelmed the state. I want to come back to the community response, but for the moment, just keep your analysts hat on for a bit longer, Samir, and tell me this. The data from the second wave is terrifying. The daily case count is more than 400,000. The average number of deaths per day is over 3,000. The positivity rate in COVID tests has increased from less than 5% a month ago to now nearly 40%. This is a dreadful set of numbers, but should we believe them? Because there's a lot of speculation that these official numbers actually underestimate the severity of the problem. I think data is a good pointer to where the trend is. Mm. Data is not a good pointer to what the reality is. And anyone who uses data to assess the real reality is mistaking the trees for the woods. But it is also equally true that if you were to see data over time, it provides you certain trends, it can shape certain policy responses, Mm. and therefore we must follow the data. Mm. Keeping all things equal, the daily data that comes out tells you the story tells you where we are struggling, tells you where we need to do more. Mm. And I think data as an indicator of action and response Mm. is a a good tool. Data as a storyteller of what is really transpiring uh, is going to be underwhelming. Samir, a lot of the international reporting of this second wave of COVID is coming from Delhi. But I want to ask you about how the situation is affecting the rest of the country, not just cities like Mumbai and Chennai and Kolkata, but also the regional areas of Delhi. Just describe to us the extent of this national emergency. So, Michael, I think this is really the crux of India's challenge. Uh, we are going through a lot of pain in Delhi, so don't get me wrong. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to suggest that Delhi is not possibly one of the worst hit places, worst affected places by the pandemic. So was Bombay a little while ago, Pune and some other cities. Mm. But I think the city-centered narratives sometimes in many ways distract our attention from what's really happening in the hinterlands, in the peri-urban scapes, in the rural part of the country, Mm. which still constitutes the majority of Indian population. In a very honest response to you, I would say we don't even know what's happening in those places. Mm. We have heard anecdotally of uh, uh, the pandemic now beginning to seriously affect life in uh, the lesser integrated parts of the country. Mm. We know of people carrying the virus back. We know of uh, various political and uh, social and community anecdotes. Mm. These are narrations. Mm. Uh, We don't really have uh, the kind of microscopic glare on the entire country simply because we don't have that state capacity to do it. Mm. The big cities uh, focus more attention, more capacity Mm. uh, uh, to investigate and chronicle what is happening there. Mm. 
a large part of the indian story would never be chronicled michael mm. a large part of what the pandemic did to india this time around mm. may never even be told may, may never even be uncovered simply because uh, we just don't pay enough attention not because we are indifferent because we don't have uh, the capacity to do it as a state all right you mentioned earlier samir the old fashioned politicking that we're hearing and i want to get into a little bit of, of this uh when something like this happens you have to ask how did it happen and who is at fault so how do you answer those questions <laughs> i think the nation failed the state failed i think uh, there are three stories the first michael is of what i call the duality of india's capacity and its capability its capacity is um, second to none it can mm. send the largest fleet of uh, transport aircrafts and pick up oxygen and and all supplies that it need and bring it to its shore it can fly back all the goods and materials it can pay the bills it can raise the finances to do it it can the the global community is rallying in that sense around india mm. for india to respond and that's the capacity of the indian state a 3 trillion dollar economy uh, an important geography an important country has the capacity to uh, marshal the resources and the inputs that it needs to respond to the pandemic mm. but getting that big oxygen cylinder that we picked up from some other part of the world and bringing that oxygen to the bed of the patient requires mm. capability mm -hmm. and we are seeing the lack of state capability also exhibit itself at the same time so we have this large state capacity and feeble state capability that is defining our response so in one sense what this pandemic really tells us about is to build that capability build the human resource invest mm. in education invest in social infrastructure invest in healthcare invest in your civil supply chains mm. that are going to respond to the individual we do fairly well in aggregate we don't do well for the individual mm. and i think that's the duality of a large state capacity and poor capabilities i think we need to build the capabilities and capabilities have been exposed that is the first reality the pandemic has in some ways uncovered uh, the second story of india of course is that it is a union and it mm -hmm. has so many different geographies we we are literally talking about multiple countries and each of those uh, states that uh, constitute the indian union is bigger than most countries in europe and other parts of the world so mm. we are really talking about a cluster of unions who have to work together now i think this has been patchy in some instances they have really come together so i think federalism has worked i think the center and state have done well in certain areas mm. uh, but uh, you can also clearly uh, acknowledge that in certain parts of uh, india certainly in my city it has not worked Uh, we see the state government and the central government don't see eye to eye mm. and people are suffering as a result of that uh, uh, lack of uh, political empathy political sensitivity and political coordination so at one level we also have to invest in the architecture of federalism i think this pandemic also tells us a story that federalism needs to be rethought and needs to be reinvented needs to be uh, re-energized for the contemporary world we inhabit today that's a second story coming out of india mm. and the third story of course is around human resources there are enough people who can put enough beds and hospital beds and icus and uh, facilities the the bricks and mortar we don't have enough people to staff them we don't have enough nurses we don't have enough doctors mm. we, i mean you know there is this assessment of india that we are a land of engineers and doctors and mm. professionals yes we are but if you look at the aggregate size of the country of 1.4 billion people clearly the pandemic tells us that we have not invested enough in producing the human resource we would need in a situation like this so mm. that's the third story coming out of india mm. that we need to rethink the cadre of professionals that are required and we have to reprioritize some of our spendings mm. uh, to uh, be able to create this cadre 
that uh, this pandemic tells us we desperately need. All right. Those are three interesting themes that COVID has revealed, three frailties, if you like, in the Indian society and state that COVID has revealed. But how much criticism do you think can be fairly leveled at the Modi government? We read in the papers a lot of criticism of complacency, taking its eye off the ball, feeling perhaps hubris, feeling that India had escaped the worst of COVID, not enforcing social distancing, allowing religious festivals and elections to proceed. How much blame do you think the national BJP government deserves? The national government will have to take a fair share of the blame, Michael. They can't avoid it. And it should be on their shoulders. Mm. We elect a prime minister, right? It's the national ruling party that is elected by people to run Mm. the country. If there are positive outcomes in their term, they take credit for it. Mm. If something like this happens, uh, there is no way that the blame should not fall squarely on them. Mm. I think everyone else, every other actor is minor. But we also have to see there are two or three things that played out simultaneously. Mm. Uh, One was a government that was not necessarily sensing the gravity of the situation in the beginning of the year, and the blame must fall. Uh, The second, of course, was the political cycles that in many ways compel a certain kind of political behavior and distraction. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when you are perpetually in election mode as a country, winning election takes priority over anything else. Mm. And I think we need to rethink how we want to organize our politics. We have seen election cycles undermine economic policy, undermine Uh, security policy. And now we have seen uh, these uh, political cycles uh, shake India's ability to respond to the pandemic. Mm. And number three, I think uh, the cadre of politicians who are today sitting in charge of our lives has to change as well. Mm. I think it's not just important to build a new parliament building. It's also uh, important to rethink who you want to put inside that building. Mm -hmm. And I think these are some of the big questions that confront the government and the people. I think India as a country has some serious introspection to do. Samir, how long will it take for India to get this crisis under control? I would say this, that we are seeing geographies, certain localities, certain spaces in India beginning to peak, beginning to reverse the trend. Uh, Bombay seems to have turned the corner. Uh, Pune has stabilized. Maharashtra seems to have plateaued. Delhi, I think, is possibly a week away from its uh, peak by the end of this month, I hope, because I'm a native here, I'm, and this is hope, this is more optimism than, mm. than any uh, data speaking, because I've not seen the trend of the mm. data which suggests this. Mm. But I'm beginning to see signs that at least we have plateaued, if not turned the corner. Mm. We, are, we are not seeing numbers increase like we did in the previous two weeks. So you're going to see a patchy Indian recovery. We are going to see certain geographies recover earlier. Mm. But as a nation, you're still going to see large numbers through this month of May. I suspect it's still a good few weeks away. It's not easy to turn it, turn it around in a country this big and this different and mm. this diverse. Mm. I think we'll have to be disciplined and we'll have to gut it out and we'll have to fight it out. I think we need to see this as the biggest challenge as a nation that we have faced. Mm. And we have to work together. We have to leave the politics aside. The state elections are over. Yesterday, the results have come. Now we have to make the pandemic our only reason of existence, fighting it. Mm. We have to save lives. Mm. And I think if we do it, we can possibly see the month of June as being a better month. Mm. But we'll have to battle it out through the month of May. Samir, let me ask you about vaccines. I think that fewer than 2% of Indians are fully vaccinated. And yet 
In the first quarter of 2021, India exported 60 million vaccine doses to other countries, and that's created some controversy. Was that the right thing to do? And what can you tell us about the vaccine rollout program now? 60 million vaccines that uh, you mentioned were part of, I think, a couple of arrangements. One was the COVAX facility, mm-hmm. which uh, India had signed on to. In a sense, the vaccines were committed to other countries in any case. Some of them were uh, vaccines sent to our neighbors who actually depend on India's production capabilities. Mm. And some of them uh, were commercial contracts. There is no doubt that in hindsight, that uh, seems to be a little odd. But I also believe, like some commentators have suggested, at least some significant portion of it was merited. Mm. It had to go to people who needed it. Mm. We have always done that. We mm. we come from uh, the politics of solidarity. Mm. We created and were the founding members of the Bandung process, of mm. the non-aligned movement, of mm of the G77. Mm. So India has to exhibit solidarity, mm. has to share. And we have shared in our misery, mm. right? We have shared mm. while we were poor. We have shared while we were struggling. Mm. And that spirit uh, certainly will compel India to continue to contribute. Mm. Let me frame this in another manner. 60 million, if you look at the numbers, would have given us, uh, certainly in the big cities, a better chance of responding to the pandemic mm. if they had been concentrated into a few uh, certain geographies it would still leave a very large number unprotected. Mm. I genuinely believe that the scale of our vaccination program has been badly planned. Mm. I I don't think 60 million is a problem. For a country that requires 1.6 billion doses, Mm. I don't think 60 million is the biggest flaw with our vaccination rollout. Mm. Of course, it is something, like I said, in hindsight, Mm. must be re-examined for the future, but we must take learnings from it. Mm. But I do believe that our challenge lies ahead that how do we get this large Indian population two doses of any of the vaccines that are available to us. Mm. And uh, we are seeing a rollout that is painfully slow even now. Mm. So before July, we are not going to see a real muscle and heft come Mm. into our vaccination drive. Mm. We are still going to see two to three million vaccines a day. And we are not going to necessarily reach the five to six to seven million that we need to ramp up uh, the spread. So I don't think the wave, this current wave is going to benefit from our vaccines. Mm. Uh, to answer it more directly, mm. I don't think vaccines are in the equation to respond to the current wave. Mm. The current wave will have to be uh, responded through other means. Uh, some states and in fact, most states have some form of lockdown and some form of restrictions mm-hmm. that are at play. Uh, we will have to be smarter in this particular wave then we would have needed to be had we got everyone vaccinated. Mm. So I think we have limited options because we have not been able to vaccinate at scale. Mm. And uh, in that sense, if you had got those 60 million vaccines that you mentioned and you had vaccinated two, three of your cities, big economic centers, clusters, Mm. you would probably have a certain benefit in those geographies. But as a country, I think uh, when you require 1600 million, the challenges are of a much larger proportion than tinkering with support to your neighbors. Mm. On the other hand, let me also suggest that uh, you can see this uh, huge global uh, empathy for India mm. in helping India respond. Mm. You can see tens of countries coming forward. Mm. You can see support from Mauritius. You can mm. see, you know, it's not only the big ones, it's also the neighbors mm. who are chipping in. Mm. We live in a global world, Michael, mm. and, and any framework has to be global in its uh, conception. Mm. And I think in that sense, the kind of support for oxygen, for equipment, for ventilators, for mm. testing kits that India is receiving from the world 
tells you that globalization is working at this time for India and is helping India tide over the time. Mm. So I think it's it would be an emotional response to say that we should not have given any vaccine to anyone. I think mm. that's an emotional response at this time and possibly a popular one at mm. this time. But uh, I think at least some parts of it, large mm. parts of it, merited uh, distribution. Uh, some parts of it could have been avoided. But overall, in balance, uh, we are benefiting a lot from the global supply chains, global contributions, global efforts mm. to help India. Uh, parts of our vaccine themselves come from global uh, destinations. Mm. Uh, so in that sense, even the vaccination program is a global program uh, by design. Mm. As you mentioned, the world is helping India, but also... Indians are helping each other. And one of the points of light in the darkness has been the care and the solidarity and the fellow feeling that Indians have shown for each other, whether it's cooking for their neighbours who are unwell or ringing around to try to get oxygen or uh, certainly on social media. You're a very savvy social media user and I see you and other Indian friends on Twitter trying to get medical oxygen or treatment for particular friends or colleagues. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned about India, the positive things you've learned about India through this pandemic. So what I've really been impressed by Mm. at this time, there's not too much to be happy about. Mm. But what has really made me feel protected at this time Mm. is that feeling of millions of Indians looking after each other. Mm. And I think that is something that has really stood out. And technology, access to mobile phones, access to platforms, has been a big driver in expanding the traditional Indian community, which was already very strong, by the way. So Mm. we were a country that had strong communities that Mm. protected each other, that looked after each other. We didn't have social protection, Michael. We still don't. Mm. We we still rely on each other Mm. in in, in most instances. So uh, what really, for me, stands out is that in this world, in this more cosmopolitan world, in this more digital world, that Indian community still shines through. And I think the way people have reached out across political ideologies, across religious identities, across caste barriers, how they are reaching out is something that really uh, impresses me as someone who likes to watch all of this uh, and learn from all of this and study all of this. Mm. I think that is something that is really, really impressive for me. The Indian community is strong, it is vibrant, and it is empathetic. Mm. I think if we can transfer some of this to our political and and, uh, governance systems, we will benefit as a country. But as people, we are doing fine. I think we are helping each other out. That's something that really stood out. Let me ask you, Samir, I think many of us were surprised last year that COVID seemed to be a rich country's disease and much of the developing world was less affected. Are we now seeing the moment that we dreaded back then when Wealthier nations get the virus under control, they get their systems in order, they, they roll out vaccination across their populations, but developing countries are left behind? That seems to be the case. It does seem that the developed world has a plan, has resources, mm-hmm. has the virus reasonably under control. And uh, these are all relative descriptions. Mm-hmm. I think Europe is still going through its mm-hmm. uh, third wave. Germany is still struggling. If you mm-hmm. look at the numbers adjusted for populations, they're very close to what India is experiencing at this time. But it does seem that with their vaccine programs and their infrastructure and their medical capacities, they seem to uh, be more in control. And clearly, we now see the virus beginning to take a savage toll Mm. on weaker economic communities. Mm. You're beginning to see that. I'm also of the view that doesn't mean that this is going to be the story going forward. Mm -hmm. There could be certain twists. Mm. 
I truly believe that there are going to be strains and mutations occurring all over the world. Mm. We are going to see certain vaccines rendered less effective mm-hmm. because of these mutations and strains. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone in the world is safe mm-hmm. unless we have responded to this challenge globally. Mm-hmm. I think we have to realize that this is a pandemic. It's a virus that requires a global response and the rich world will have to do much more. It will have to look beyond its nose and contribute to the vaccine efforts of countries uh, which are poor, mm. countries that don't have the means to uh, access uh, the vaccines, countries that don't even have uh, a chance of getting a vaccine for the next one year or two mm. years. So mm. I think we need to do much more globally to respond to the pandemic. Otherwise, no one is safe. Uh, the virus could uh, render many programs ineffective. Just this week, there's been discussion on whether vaccine patents should be waived to help developing nations deal with COVID. What do you think? Michael, I think this is a demonstrator project. If you want the world to start responding to climate change as one, to start responding, you know, I always tell people that the pandemic at least allows us to discover a vaccine that can fix it. Mm -hmm. Uh, When the planet finally gets back at us, we won't have a vaccine to respond to climate change. Mm. That system failure as such, if we fail as a world to manage a changing climate, uh, what is going to happen in the next 5, 10, 15 years, no one can predict. But we will not have a vaccine to fix uh, mm. a, a planet gone wrong. So in many ways, I think if we want to work as a world to respond to some global challenges, uh, the vaccine program is the demonstrator project. Mm. You get it wrong and the world is going to realize that uh, we are basically selfish. We have to protect ourselves. We have to grow for our own people. We have to create economic wealth for ourselves so that we can respond to our time. You get it right. And you get a chance of building back better, building green, creating the right transitions and creating a feeling of the global community that, by the way, has been undermined in the last one and a half years. Mm. Uh, We saw the Americans who were missing from action. We saw uh, the Chinese who were implicated in its spread. We Mm. saw global institutions that were captured for political purposes. Uh, One world was missing in the Mm. last one and a half years. Mm. I think the vaccine program is a chance to redeem ourselves Mm. and, and take it to the world, or the vaccine program is going to be the the last nail in globalization's coffin, and we are going to see a very different, perverse, selfish uh, global integration project in the future. Speaking of the United States and China, how do you think the pandemic is affecting their relative positions in the world? Of course, initially, the United States really struggled with the pandemic, but it's getting control of it now. The virus originated in China and it spread from Wuhan to the world, but the Chinese have been very effective in using their authoritarian system to clamp down on the virus within China. Where will that sort of net out in terms of the power position of the United States and China in the world and and the way that the rest of the world thinks about these two superpowers, do you think? Michael, I think since both of us work in the field of IR and and geopolitics. Mm. Uh, I think this is an interesting decade ahead. The Americans have recovered partially at home. I think they have paid a very heavy price. They are still seeing uh, certain parts of that country uh, struggling. Mm. But uh, the Biden administration has in many ways reclaimed the large space uh, that had been lost to Mm. the virus. But this has largely been a domestic story for America. Mm. America is still not a global champion that global actor who would come and protect you, Uncle Sam, who would Mm. land and save you. Mm. I don't think Americans have reached that stage yet in Mm. the pandemic story. They are still trying to solve the domestic challenges, Mm. the internal problems. Mm. Uh, But a strong America is good for the world. And in that sense, 
if America is able to recover in the next few months and is then able to be that international provider of services, provider of healthcare, uh, the first responder, as it were, mm-hmm. to, to the pandemic for many parts of the world, Americans could regain the lost ground. Mm-hmm. I think it would be fair to say that in spite of the virus originating from Wuhan, Many countries found the offerings of China more attractive in the last one year. Mm. Uh, Certainly in the developing world, certainly in certain parts of the world. Mm. Uh, And I think that was largely because there was no other option. The Americans were missing from any sensible global uh, discussions. And in many ways, I think the Biden challenge uh, had always two layers. One was fix the country at home and then fix the global uh, proposition that America was going to make to all of us. Mm. And I think that second part still remains to be tested and seen. I'm hoping that with the response to India, the American response to India, mm. the conversations around transferring some of its own stocks of mm. vaccines to others mm. uh, is going to encourage America to be the global actor it was for much of the last century, 70 years or seven mm. decades. Uh, and it might see a new role of America emerge uh, in the world. Certainly, currently, the first banker of choice for many countries still remains Beijing. Mm. The the only provider of infrastructure finance happens to be uh, uh, mm. the BRI. So I think a strong America is good if that strong America is uh, not isolationist, but uh, is uh, more expansive and, and more ambitious in its global role. What about the pandemic in India's global role? We've seen in the last few years India stepping out onto the world stage, becoming more confident about projecting its influence and power, less constrained by the history of uh, non-alignment that perhaps that you mentioned earlier. One example of this, a striking example, was Prime Minister Modi's participation in the Quad Leaders Summit a couple of months ago. But now India is consumed by this emergency that may go on for months and months and months. How will this affect India's place in the world and how it conducts itself globally? Michael, the playbook for India for the next few weeks, months is no different to the American playbook. India has to fix itself. Mm. We have to heal ourselves. We have to get our act together. And India that is dysfunctional is of no use to anyone. Mm. Uh, So I think our single purpose over the next few weeks and months has to be to heal prepare for the third wave. I keep saying this to folks, the third wave is coming. We have to prepare for it. Mm. We are going to face challenges over the next one year responding to the pandemic simply because of the vastness of the country, Mm. the different spaces that are still vulnerable. India has to prepare for that first. I think Mm. in some ways, the India first response has to be the most important response in responding to where we are today. Now, that doesn't mean that we are not and we should not be engaging with uh, neighbors, with uh, those who need us, with those mm. who seek our assistance. I think if we were to get our act right and get our act together, and if we were to heal ourselves in the next few months, we will be a very effective contributor to the world. We would have built up capacities around much of what is needed to respond to the pandemic. We would have uh, uh, chronicled learnings in responding to the pandemic mm. at scale. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not a small city responding to a pandemic. This is a large 1.3 billion strong community responding to the pandemic. We would have a lot to share with the world. But first, mm. we have to get ourselves. We have to heal ourselves. We are struggling today. Mm. So I think our challenge over the next two to three months has to be India. Mm. And thereafter, I think with the capacities you would have built up, be it on vaccines, be it on Medicare, be it on oxygen, be it on other essentials. I think we need to 
uh, continue doing what we have started doing in the recent past, uh, share with our neighbors, share with the larger uh, Indo-Pacific cluster of countries who, who need this, who benefit from this, work with the African continent and share and learn together mm. on, on how to manage the development challenges resulting from the pandemic. I think all of that would still continue. Michael, I'm a, I'm a possibilist. I see greater possibilities for India, provided we fix ourselves. We fix ourselves the possibilities. You know, I keep telling my friends who, rightly so, sometimes seem forlorn, seem a little sad, seem melancholic. Mm. I keep telling them. While, uh, of course, we are going through a terrible, terrible moment. And we are experiencing dark times. If we work together, we work hard, we work right, we work smart. We will overcome. And once we overcome, we will have lots of uh, learnings to share uh, with each other, with the world, with our partners. And I think there is a possibility for India in the coming months to contribute to the efforts around the pandemic, but certainly around other global challenges as well. Let me ask you about globalization. You mentioned earlier that globalization is now helping India as medical supplies and and vaccines and oxygen and other things flow into India. You, of course, were a practitioner of globalization yourself before the pandemic, traveling around the world, participating in the international exchange of ideas. When you look ahead, what do you think the future of aviation and international travel and international exchanges will look like? Do you think we will return in a year or two to a sort of a a quasi-normal situation? Or do you think that this aspect of international exchange has been permanently reshaped by the pandemic? I have mixed feelings on this and mixed assessments on this. I do believe that we are going to return to normalcy in the next couple of years. It could be one year in certain parts, two years Mm -hmm. in other parts, but it will take us a couple of years before we are able to see the same level of uh, air travel, same number of passengers, uh, occupancy rates Mm -hmm. in hotels, uh, growth of the business travel and tourism sectors. I do believe we could get there in a couple of years. But I also believe that the pandemic has taught some of us that we don't have to be traveling to be effective. Mm. I think uh, the the year and a half of work from home or two years of work from home, if uh, we were to take 2022 as um, the year of the inflection point of, of a new global world, it would have taught us that this conversation that we are having using technology is possible without the face-to-face recordings that would have normally occurred in your fabulous Lowy office mm-hmm. uh, in Sydney. So I think many of us are going to cut back on certain non-essential mm. uh, travel. We are going to use technology more aggressively than we have done in the past. But because we are growing as a world, in gross terms, we are going to see large volumes return in a couple of years. Mm. Uh, In individual terms, Mm. we are going to cut back on some of our travels. Let me ask you about Australia, Samir. As you know, Australia has essentially eliminated the virus and there is zero appetite for accepting COVID risk. For example, it's very hard for me as an Australian to go overseas. It's hard for Australians to get back home. It's very hard for non-Australians to get into Australia. In light of the crisis in India, as you know, the Australian government has paused all flights from India for a couple of weeks and indeed it's introduced criminal penalties for anyone who seeks to circumvent that travel ban, that's attracted some political controversy here in Australia. What do you think of that and how will Indians react to that development? I'll say something that might not be very popular in India, but I think any country who's being careful in letting in Indians at this time is being sensible. We should all be 
uh, cautious. We should all be caring. We should all be empathetic. But we should make sure that we don't contribute to the spread of the virus. Uh, the last thing we would want is uh, another geography to experience uh, what we are experiencing today. So for me, uh, be it uh, uh, the Germans or uh, the French or uh, Netherlands or others who have rethought the connectivity with India. It's fair, Michael. I think we have to be careful. Now, criminal penalties and not letting back certain category of folks is a different question. And uh, I think we need to be sensitive to, you know, citizens or mm. uh, residents, mm. permit holders or or uh, those who have spouses and family. Mm. We have to think of a way in which we can create a basis for them to still travel for essential reasons. Mm. And I think uh, we need to rethink uh, the policy uh, around these uh, folks, they are in many ways uh, what I call the carriers of globalization. They are the ones who have actually integrated the world. The diaspora mm. you were mentioning, Michael, mm. at the very beginning, the Indian mm. diaspora of, of uh, millions who mm. are connecting India to the world, who are making India, the world contribute to, uh, to uh, India's cause at this time. We have to have a, a different and more empathetic uh, approach. I mean, I can tell you from my own personal experience, when the, when the pandemic, uh, the first wave uh, last year, when the pandemic struck the world, my wife, who is a, a overseas citizen of India, who has an OCI card holder, mm-hmm. something like a green card, mm. uh, her particular category of, of card was uh, cancelled by the Indian government. So uh, there was no way for her to return to India. Mm-hmm. Not that she complained, but I'm just saying that mm. uh, 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 all of us uh, have done this. We do realize that uh, this pandemic also tells us the frailties of how we respond as policymakers. Mm. So I think... We have to be careful. We have to make sure we don't contribute to the spread of the virus, but we also have to be humans because that is what we are first. Samir, you mentioned earlier a line you had tweeted, which is the community is the cavalry. And Mm -hmm. I, I hope that the international community can be the cavalry too. India has many friends around the world. What's the most useful thing that friends of India whether it's someone like me personally or whether it's uh, my government, what is it that we can do to help? Some of the essentials are well known. Uh, We are struggling with equipment related to oxygen, hospitals, of course, immediate testing kits and, and, and medicines. I mean, those are known. For me, more importantly, is uh, solidarity. Mm. I think uh, for me, I read about uh, what the Australians have sent us, what the Americans have sent us, what the French have sent us, and I'm thankful and I'm grateful. And truly, I feel wonderful as a person and I I don't feel alone. And I think Mm. that is what is important. Continue to engage with us, Michael, so that we Mm. don't feel alone. Mm. Uh, We are fighting this battle. We are responding to the pandemic. Mm. We are responding sometimes in ways which might seem irrational to others. Mm. But... uh, your being there is more important than anything else. There is uh, an urgent uh, need for material resources, but more than just the material resources, I think the idea that we are not alone in one of the toughest battles that this country has fought since its independence is equally of relevance to many of us. It tells us that we are in this together. We are part of a world that is rooting for us and it will inspire the, the frontline respondents who are trying to douse Uh, this particular pandemic that is spreading like fire across the country. Well, you aren't alone, Samir. India's friends around the world are sending you all solidarity and friendship and love. The catch cry on Twitter is India fights Corona and we are willing you on in that fight. So strength to your arm, my friend, and stay safe. And in the meantime, Samir Saran, thank you for speaking with me today on the Director's Chair. 
Thank you for having me, Michael, and I look forward to seeing you in better times. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair.